the beginning of chapter 5 this morning, Paul Ar- uh, Paul's argument moves into a new area, if you will. Verse 1 has this summarizing ring to it of everything that Paul has said up to this point, or, or really the purpose for which he's said it. He's shown how Christians have been brought to a place where they're now standing in grace. We are no longer alienated from God because of our sin. The gospel that is the power of God for our salvation brings with it the proclamation of the forgiveness of our sins and that the perfect righteous obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has been credited to our account so that it counts as our righteousness, putting us, therefore, into a right relationship with God forever. Now, the focus of Romans from 5.1 to uh, 8.39, really, turns from how we've gotten to this standing, to gotten to where we are, to the current circumstances in which every Christian lives in any age, which is mainly suffering and hope and joyful confidence. The first 11 verses of chapter 5 serve as an introduction to this next section. Now Paul will address the second aspect of his opponent's criticism of his gospel, so to speak, which we know is Christ's gospel, and that is that Paul's gospel of salvation through Jesus by grace through faith apart from works, it has no power in it. You can't even see any power in it in the lives of Christians. They still struggle with sin. They still suffer. So what use, what good is Paul's gospel? That's the second major criticism his opponents had of him. And up to this point, Paul has been arguing from the Old Testament scriptures that the gospel he's preaching doesn't make God a liar, but rather reveals his righteousness. That when God put Jesus forward as the atoning sacrifice to put people into a right relationship with him through faith, it actually showed, confirmed, displayed God's truthfulness. But Paul's opponents also said, of course, that his gospel was a gospel of crucifixion and weakness. Paul's own suffering, after all, which was immense, and his own mistreatment for the sake of the gospel, and the fact that, again, believers continued to struggle with sin in their daily lives, led his opponents to ask, where, you said the gospel is the power of God for salvation, where is this power? Paul ought to be ashamed of this gospel that leaves one exposed to the world as a suffering sinner. That was the next argument. Beloved of God, those of us who have believed in Paul's gospel are not ashamed of it or ought not to be ashamed of it. For with the spirit of power and love and wisdom, we rejoice and may even boast in the midst of our afflictions because the gospel Paul preaches that we receive is that power of God for salvation to all who believe. This is what Paul will now address. Will the gospel he preaches be found to do justice to the reality of life in this world as a believer? It is not necessarily that the focus of the Christian life in this world in sanctification is about becoming progressively better in behavior. What is more real, more constant in the life of a believer is that we are passing through the afflictions of this age to the goal of consummation one day in glory. We live in this fallen world, but it's been invaded by the gospel of the kingdom, which has arrived and, of course, is still yet to come in fullness. We live life on the way from death to glory. 
This is our experience every day. As we wake up, we're moving from death to glory. Suffering in sin and affliction, but at peace with God through this grace in which we stand. Let me pray and we'll get started here. Father, I pray that your word would do its work in the power of your spirit this morning for each and every one of us, the speaker and those who listen. I ask that you would indeed enable all to hear and to believe, Lord, to understand that you have your way in us, that we might hope in you when all is said and done. And this we ask and pray through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll begin at verse 1 here. For all, I'm sorry, 5-1, I just got a piece of ice in my mouth. That's not embarrassing at all. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What has being put into a right relationship with God through faith, what has that done for us? What is it given? Beloved, peace with Almighty God. Peace. Notice Paul presents this also as a settled matter. Since we've been put into a right relationship with God by faith and not by works, peace is our present and future possession and standing before God. If our initial or ongoing standing with God did depend on our works or was attained through our works, then peace with God would never be a settled manner. It would only be a potential one based on how we were doing that day. And Paul is arguing here to tell us peace with God is not dependent on such things. We have peace with God because we've been put into a right relationship with Him by grace in Jesus Christ through faith, through believing. He fully forgives us and makes us fully righteous. Therefore, we have always have peace with God. No more wrath, no more fear, no more judgment. When you are living your life and it is getting difficult, God is not against you. You have peace with Him, believer. No more doubt. Peace with God. But this faith in Christ in verse 2 has also given us access into all this grace in which we stand. Believer, our standing before God rests on grace. It does not rest on what we do, but on what God has done for us in Christ. And we discover here that it was grace that brought us to this place. Grace gave us faith. And now we're not only recipients of grace, but our justified status before Him is maintained by grace, remains by grace. And therefore, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Meaning that before God saved us, when we had only fallen short of His glory, if you remember in Romans 3.23, Jesus has brought us so deeply into His glory that God's glory in saving us is now our hope. The glory of God shown in His great salvation when He redeems sinners so that His grace is exalted over sin and death and hell. His commitment to glorifying His name by saving dead and helpless sinners. The fact that that is God's will and how He will be glorified, that is my hope. He's put His glory on the line in my salvation. Therefore, we never need fear again that we are not at peace with God. God's glory is no longer a threat to me. 
as a sinner. Since what I do is fall short of it. It's now displayed in His salvation of me. And in this, I hope. We hope in the fact that He is ours and we are His. But not only that. In other words, in verse 3, Paul is saying the benefits of this salvation are not only in heaven. They're not only purely spiritual realities. You pick it up in verse 3 here. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So to be at peace with God so transforms the reality of our lives that we may now rejoice in our sufferings. Now, we read that, we have to stop and ask, wait a minute, how is it that a Christian rejoices in their sufferings? Suffering is not enjoyable, right? So how do we rejoice in this? Is Paul advocating here for something like the power of positive thinking? Right, Norman Vincent Peale, you just grin and, and act like it's not there and it's not real. And if you just keep thinking positively, good things will happen, all of this sort of thing. Is Christianity masochistic? Right, The, the argument could certainly be made, I guess. After all, our Savior willingly suffered, willingly died on the cross to do His Father's will. And in Hebrews 12, too, he, it said that He did it for the joy that was set before Him. Beloved, we do not rejoice in our sufferings because Christians are supposed to enjoy suffering because they're Christians. Our God does not treat our suffering and afflictions with such disregard. Right? That is not the message here. The message is not smile when you're suffering. You're, you're just pouting and whining. You're a Christian. You ought to be happy. and To be at peace with Almighty God means that our joy and salvation now will be consummated in eternity. And because Jesus is so sufficient and victorious for us in the gospel, because of which or through which he is now seated at the right hand of God for us, reigning as God brings, uh, puts all his enemies under our feet, the certainty of the eternity we've been promised is now spiritually invading our present everyday experience. It lifts up my heart now in the midst of what I'm going through to the degree that I see them differently. I see the present in light of eternity. And therefore, I am able to rejoice even when I am grieving or mourning or struggling or sad. It's not that I stopped feeling those things because of the reality of my situation. There's nothing Christian about that, denying reality. It means that alongside the grief and suffering I'm going through, I have hope because I may also rejoice knowing that God is bringing an end to all of this for me. The things we experience here, maybe especially the suffering, these things don't determine our destiny. These things don't decide what our future is. God has decided and fixed what our future is because of the gospel. And the way we deal with it and perceive it now as believers, we understand that the rocking and wailing of the world, which makes me suffer in the present tense, all of this has been set in motion 
by the gospel that saved me. Jesus invaded. Things began to twist and turn. And that's what his coming did. So all the things in the world that may cause me grief and sorrow and suffering are actually ultimately a result of his victory. This is simply a matter of our perspective when we suffer. We are not at the mercy of our trials and sufferings, beloved. These things will pass. And one day, they will pass for the last time. Right? So we rejoice in our sufferings because we know in verse 3, so here's why, not because suffering isn't suffering. We rejoice in suffering because we know in verse 3 that suffering produces endurance. That's, that, that gets me home. Right? And verse 4, or in verse 4, endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And in verse 5, the hope we have as Christians is not a hope that will one day put us to shame for having had it. Because, so here's why, here's what all this is based on. And notice that it's outside of me and comes to me. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, everything you read there in 3 through 5, that's of course the ideal Christian response to suffering. Yes. But it's also more than possible for us because we are loved by God down to the very depths of who we are. When the Bible, when God's Word in Christ wants to give you hope, it reminds you that everything you're clinging to is yours from the outside in. It's not coming from you. It's not dependent on you. But on the God who made the promise. Our promise, our goal is to endure that we might get home. That means that rather than suffering then being only a threat to us, especially when it's so hard to endure, now since we have peace with God and our future is fixed in Him, this suffering is going to be a means through which we endure to the end. In God's hands, suffering produces endurance. It is a way for God to wean us off the world of depending on this world and hoping that this world will give us everything our hearts desire because everything here is broken. It doesn't matter how hard you work or how much you want it to be livable for us. It never will be. And we continue to struggle with sin also. This is a struggle that we may not talk about as much. Maybe we don't think about it as that. But we continue to practice bad and sinful habits. It's very hard to maintain hope when you look at yourself and realize you're not progressing at the pace you think you should be. That is very hard to deal with. It can eat away at your soul until it takes all your faith from you. That's why we don't stand in our faith. We stand on grace. But... If we were to evaluate our progress and our standing in life all the time, we'd probably end up feeling defeat and frustration more than anything else as a Christian. So much of our suffering doesn't come about because of the bad things in the world that might affect us. They come about a lot of times because we get ourselves in trouble. And the effects of the choices we made and the things we've done haunt us and pursue us and crowd around us because in our flesh, in these bodies... Right? In this world, we will still struggle. But, 
from the perspective of eternity as people who through faith in Jesus Christ have been put irrevocably into a right relationship with God that remains all the time and therefore are now at peace with Him as suffering keeps reminding us of our weakness and frailty, it is also working for us, working for us, as Paul says later in 2 Corinthians 4, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Nothing you suffer is in a vacuum. It is working for us an eternal weight of glory that God says is beyond all comparison. That gives us the perspective to endure through it. Because the weight it holds over us now in eternity will be transformed into a weight of glory that can't be compared with the weight that suffering brings. Because of the promise. Because of Jesus. Because of Him. We're at peace with God now. That's how we navigate life. God has made what once convinced us we were doomed and defeated become a means through which He brings us to Himself. Suffering teaches us how to endure in light of the promise God has given us in Christ. Excuse me. And endurance produces character in verse 4. Yes, as we learn more and more over time, That faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Our hearts are drawn closer to God. And the closer we get to Him, the more we want to be like His Son. And and, uh, the character that is brought about by faithful endurance is the kind of character that produces hope. Because if my character is improving because of faith in God, in the One who made the promise, that means that God's Spirit is producing His fruit in me. The fruits of the Spirit are produced in us over time as we grow in faith through suffering and loss as God conforms us to the image of His Son. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 22 to 33, the fruit of the Spirit is first love. What has God poured into our hearts in the Spirit? Love. It's what God is pouring into our hearts that brings out the good works that help us see Him more clearly as He is transforming us to the image of Christ. From the confidence the Spirit gives us comes hope. And in verse 5, this is not a hope that will come to nothing one day. This isn't a hope that we hope for nothing, beloved. The goal is to draw closer and closer to Christ. And God has not given us peace with Him. He's not put us into a right relationship with Him for there to then be no relationship. We're in a relationship with Him now. In that relationship, there is a religion, right? But we have been put into a right relationship with God. So we've not been put into a a place of political peace with God, but relational peace with God. That's different than a, a ceasefire, right? Nations, two warring nations can come to a treaty and a term and an agreement that you won't blow each other up anymore, but that's as far as it goes, right? You have peace because you're not fighting. This is peace that makes us children of God. This is peace that is the result of being reconciled to God. 
We were estranged from Him in our sin. He's brought us back to Him through the blood of His Son. Brought us near once more. The state of our relationship to God is one of peace. That is unchangeable. That's untouchable. The thing standing in between me and God was not my shattered dreams and my circumstance. It was my sin. My sinfulness as a person. That, what made the rift between us, has been taken care of and removed. All the sin, all the hostility, all the rebellion has had the blood of Jesus Christ wash it away. And because I'm in that place, He then fills up the emptiness of me with the righteousness of Christ and gives me right standing with Him. That never can change again. I am at peace with God. That's why hoping in this promise doesn't put us to shame. Because in verse 5, again, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Beloved, when you feel the weight of this world, when you feel the weight of your struggle with sin, of your circumstances crushing down on you, threatening to take everything from you, you look to heaven from whence comes the love and the promise of God unfailingly unfailingly and know that God himself has not just processed a legal transaction an accounting transaction by which you and I are now innocent he's now brought us close to himself for a relationship he's poured out his love on us God uses God inspires these words for reasons beloved he's a lavish divine love on us poured it out on us through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, right? So again, I don't, to find out whether or not God loves me, I don't look at my circumstances and I don't trust how I feel ever. I trust what God has said. I don't always feel the Spirit in me, but God says He's put His Spirit in me by grace through faith. So I believe that. I don't live out of my experience of things. We can't. Right? We, we, we wouldn't either we'd have no confidence and probably turn away, or we'd become Pharisees that don't see reality and lie to ourselves. We don't have to do either one. Our sin is forgiven, our righteousness is credited to us in Christ. We have peace with God. You have peace with God. It has no bearing whatsoever on that peace how your life may be going in this moment. That's not where peace comes from. It comes from heaven. It comes from God. It comes from the promise in the Spirit that God says is in me. It's always about believing the Word. Always. Believing the objective truth. The standing I have with God is declared to me, or that is declared to me in Scripture, is the result of His objective power and promise. Not by performance, beloved. We are loved. Period. And we have peace with God. That brings us to verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For 
If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, beloved, hear all that in light of verse 5. Because verse 5 does what? It acknowledges our weakness as creatures. Those first five verses reminded us that we were God's enemies. And we had to be put into a right relationship with Him that was only possible through His grace. We were only going to be saved if this God we had offended decided to move towards us in grace rather than wrath. They also remind us that we will continue to endure trials and suffering. In other words, they remind us, though we are at peace with God, and it's irrevocable, and we're loved by God irrevocably, we are still weak. And we are still in these bodies. That means, however, that God knows we are weak. And knows that we come from the dust originally. And he comes swooping in here in verse 6 to remind us that he did all of this for us, not because or after we had proved ourselves. Not when we had shown that we were good investments. Not when... He found evidence in us that we were worth all the trouble. That's not when he died for us. He died for us while we were still weak. At the right time, our weakest time, Christ died for the ungodly in verse 6. So if you, not knowing Christ, believe that you are godly and he's going to accept you, you cannot claim this as your own. You can't. Jesus died to save the ungodly. That's what we want to be or realize that we are in order to be saved at our weakest moment, which I think he's, he's maybe referencing here specifically at the cross where humanity proved once and for all who we really were and what we would do if God tried to save us, and that's kill the Savior. Jesus died for us. It's not like Jesus came to earth to give us one last chance to prove ourselves. If you kill me, it's over. I'm done with you. No, no, no. That he came because he was going to die. Because this was the design and the will of God. In verse 6, at our weakest moment, he did this. He gave up his life because we were weak, not because we were strong. You see Paul's favorite word there, for, at the beginning of verse 6 again. Hope in Christ does not disappoint in verse 5. Because Christ saves the weak and the ungodly in verse 6. That's why hoping in Him will never put us to shame or bring shame. If He saves the weak and the ungodly, then everything is going to be okay. That's what the Word of God is. Is telling us. In verse 7, Paul acknowledges there are exceptions in humanity when someone might actually die for somebody else, but that's pretty rare, even if the person you're dying for is good or meaning, you know, how would you know that they had been good to you? And so you to, to show them that would 
die for them maybe. But God in verse 8, this is not why God is dying. Or why Jesus is dying for us at the cross. God's love in verse 8 that has been poured into our hearts, if you remember back in verse 5, is not a love that we had earned. God's love for us is not His response to us being worthy of it. It is precisely the opposite, beloved. When, when a person dies for a good person, what they would be saying is, I value you so much, you're so good that I'm going to do this for you. When Jesus looks at us to die for us, what He sees is us pounding nails in His hands and His feet. And lusting and uh, losing our tempers and being awful, angry, unforgiving, unkind, malicious, half holy, if that people. And He dies for us. He doesn't die for us based on what He sees in us. Only in the sense that what He sees in us is nothing worth dying for. And when you're talking about Jesus, Jesus dies for that. For that. For this, for me, I'm so thankful Jesus, as He's hanging on the cross, doesn't think in His mind, well, when is Tony Romano, like, like, will He eventually become perfect so that what I'm doing here was worth it? I'm so thankful that's not how Jesus dies for us. And do I believe Jesus had every name on His mind? I absolutely believe that. It's Jesus. No, it's, it's, it's when He sees that I will not become strong, that I will not outgrow my weakness, that He says, I'm going to die for this man because He's going to need me to cover His life from birth to death. And so that's what I'm going to hang here until I die for Him and for you. That's what I'm going to do. That's how Jesus died for us. It's an amazing thing to consider. How could we ever think that God would turn His back on us for struggling when He sent His Son to die for us at our weakest moment, right? He already has committed Himself to loving you when you can't do anything about it, about your own situation, right? So do we think that after He's brought us into His family, then He's going to reject us for being weak? He died for us when we were weak. Right when we needed it the most, He died for us. Jesus died for us while we were still sinning against Him. One of the most powerful words in the Bible that maybe because of Easter or something or holidays, we, we, that's not really a critique, just maybe we don't really think about how amazing it was for him to say this, but when he's dying, saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. My goodness. Because, look, murdering the Son of God, like, you get obliterated for that. Right? I mean, you, you don't just get to do it. And for that moment, for those hours, Jesus is putting all that aside. He's not using the advantage he had for himself and saving himself. He's dying and saving you and me. Don't think for a minute, beloved, that when you're his own dear child and you've been reconciled, that when you struggle to believe or to keep the faith or you keep struggling through a sin and you're repenting, but you keep falling and repenting and keep falling, don't think he's going to then say, uh, look, you're not strong. I'm not going to love you. No, he's already loved us when we were weak, when we were ungodly. Now when he looks at us, he sees his spirit in us. He's telling us, look, I poured out my love on you. 
Trust me, and beloved, it's those, these are the things that we believe in suffering that help us endure. We don't try to endure by chin up, be strong, I'll make it through, nothing can beat me, not today, Satan, all, all that type of... Beloved, I, I, we endure because the promise is true. Because that never changes, right? That never changes. We, we rest in what is unchanging, the Word of Almighty God. Infallible, inerrant, authoritative, inspired, now and forever and ever before, right? We trust this. He is not going to turn us away when our hope is that we'll endure to reach Him. Even when that involves failure and suffering because the promise is too powerful, it's too good. The gospel we believe in is too powerful and effective and sufficient to ever be ashamed of. God comes to us and abides with us by His Spirit in this world here and now. Right? Us not being ashamed of the gospel is not a pride thing. We don't walk around all tough like, I believe the gospel and I'm not afraid of it. No. Not being ashamed of it is not something about your pride. It's not, don't be ashamed of the choice you've made. Like, it's not a statement about you and I. It's a statement of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this message because I'm weak and ungodly. And it's true because of God's promise. Therefore, why would I ever be ashamed of what Jesus has done for me? It's not an occasion to brag. It's an occasion to hide under His wings. He's not left us alone here. God comes to us. He abides with us in His Spirit in this world here and now. It's not a matter of whether or not I can feel that. God is telling, listen, this is true. You believe in the resurrection and you weren't there. Believe this. It's true. I said it. It's true. This is my hope. My hope is what God says to me. My hope is what God says I am. That's all my hope. That's all. I have nothing else. Nothing else. I want that so badly for each and every one of you. That, that your hope is what God has said, what God has promised. This would lay like a warm blanket over us, beloved. Bring us so closely together. What Jesus did is meant to be in front of our eyes all the time. He's not left us alone here. He wants us to know in 5.8 that He loved us at our worst, most awful, most weakest moments. That sin that you were so ashamed of, you would die if everybody knew about it and found out about it. He saw it. And when He saw us doing those things, He died for us. Every time you come to a moment where you feel like you're at the, you know, the place of no return, this is the weakest, worst, most sinful time in my life. Remember, at that time, the right time, that you needed it the most, He died for you. He died for you. It's done. It's finished. Now come rest and the good works that flow from being safe in God. Now now read that word since with all its intended force there in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. If God loved us and His Son died for us while we were still sinners, justifying us by His Son's blood, then how much more is He going to save you from His wrath on that final day? If He saved you when you weren't His, rest assured He will save you when you are His. 
if he loved you when you were his enemy, how much more safe are you from his wrath, from his wrath when you're in a right relationship with him by grace through faith? How much safer are you now because of what God says about you and to you? Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Remember chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We will be saved by his life because of his death, beloved. The death of Jesus gave his life to me. The God who reconciles his enemies and repents them to himself saves them, saves them from judgment and wrath based on his son's life of obedience, not based on their life, our life of sin and struggle. You see that? My salvation is based on the life of Christ, not the life of Tony. All that is meant to give us the confidence to be at peace as we suffer and to love and serve our neighbors in good works. And then notice here in verse 11 how he brings this argument together from verse 3. Remember verse 3? Not only that. So you have this great thing. Not only that. Here in verse 11, more than that. So even more than all that we just read, all the beauty of 6 to 10. We not only rejoice now, we know that our suffering is a means by which God is pulling us ever closer to himself and the consummation of the promise and won't depart from us because he loves us. But even more so somehow, we rejoice because we have been reconciled. Meaning that all that was necessary for eternal life to become irrevocably ours has been accomplished for us through Jesus. You know how it feels probably to forgive someone and want it to be over and you're not going to hang it over their head and they won't accept that. And they keep carrying around the guilt of what they did and so they stay estranged from you when the one who was offended you is forgiving them. And it keeps this relationship from being full again. God is saying to you and I, regardless of where we are in this moment, right? This was written a very long time ago and it's living and active now for you, believer, and for any who would hope and believe in Christ. Any in this room. I've reconciled you to me. It's done. I'm your father and your friend. And my son is your elder brother. And I love you. And everything in your life is a tool to get you home to me. And I know what I'm doing. So trust me. You're mine. Believe that we're reconciled. Don't come to me in prayer like I'm still your enemy. I'm not. I love you. I want you close to me. It glorifies me when you repent of the sin you're still struggling with. It glorifies me when you do works that are pleasing to me for the sake of other people. I don't need them. You're reconciled to me in Christ, but your neighbor does and your enemy does. Believe what I said, that you're reconciled to me. The the, the conflict between us is over. I like you and I love you. All that was necessary for eternal life to become irrevocably ours has been accomplished for us through Jesus. Beloved, these 11 verses are God telling us the result of being at peace with Him through Jesus Christ. All this is yours. Don't say the gospel is not powerful then. 
Paul would say, when its message is the means by which the promise and benefits of God come to me. If something can do that, how powerful is it? I mean, it goes against all natural law. The promise that holds me steady when I can't even see straight, let alone stand on my own. My life, this life, is hidden with Christ in God. And no one can snatch us from His hand. So let me close with the words of this song. Ben, I blatantly wink at you. I know you know this song, or I think you do, but if we could do this song one day, it would be so great. Listen to these words. I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see His wounds, His hands, His feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears. They held him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance sealed by heavy stone. Messiah still and all alone. Then on the third at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. O trampled death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ the King. Oh, praise the name of the Lord Most High. Oh, praise His name forever. For endless days we will sing Your praise, O Lord, O Lord, our God. That is Your song and my song. And if you came into this room alienated from Christ in unbelief, make it Your song this morning. He will accept you. He promises. He promises. Everyone in this room, be reconciled to God. Believers, you know that positionally you're reconciled to Him. Appropriate it in your mind. Pray to the Father. Help me believe, O God, and embrace and understand what it means to be reconciled to You and be at peace with You. Help me understand. Help me believe when I don't believe. And every unbeliever in this room that desires to come to Christ... Come, don't worry about the words you say. Repent of your sins. Ask to be forgiven. Confess Jesus as Lord. It's over. All this is unleashed on you by simply receiving, by believing that it's true. That's it. I agree with this. Then you're saved and safe and at peace with God. We live life on the way from death to glory. Suffering in sin and affliction, but at peace with God by this grace in which we stand. 